0: Now on RTÉ Radio 1 Arts Tonight, presented by Vincent Woods Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight (music) On this evening's Arts Tonight, straw, hay and rushes in Irish folk tradition For centuries, straw, hay and rushes were used to make everyday objects which we now appreciate for their craftsmanship, beauty and for the glimpse they allow us into the lives and skills of the people who until more recently made those very objects. In a new book entitled Straw, Hay and Rushes in Irish Folk Tradition, author Anne O'Dowd presents the cultural context for the making of a range of objects from clothing to children's playthings, furniture and transport to ritual related objects such as Bridget's Crosses and Rush Candles. I met with Anne O'Dowd in the National Museum of Ireland Country Life Division in Turlough County, Mayo, where she told me about her background and how she became interested in such material and stories in the first place.
1: I think when it all started for me was I got one of these Galen scholarships 1968. I was 13 going around 14. I remember it was year Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. I was... Um, sent off down to Crook in Indravan, in, in County to learn Irish. And it was, a very, it, was a, it was an extraordinary system. My older uh, sister and brothers had gone to Unrin College in Waterford. For some reason, I wasn't being sent down there, and they were gone for a year. I was only gone for the last term of school. And uh, I've met people since who said, Did you last? I, I, I could only do a week. I had to come home after three weeks. Because the culture shock is enormous. And yet I just kind of went into it and thought, wow, this is an eye-opener. Loved it. And I had a great friend that I made very quickly who was in the same school with me, Nora Follin. And I couldn't believe that Nora, who lived a stone's throw from the school, it was um, Gone Small in um, Spittle, I'm sure it's still there, because she won a scholarship and so she boarded in the school. But every weekend she'd go home and I remember the first time going into her parents' house and it was a thatched house. for my first time going into a thatched house and I was a little city kid so I was put into the straw chair at the fireplace the most important spot in the house she had a gas cooker but she was boiling the potatoes for the animals still on the huge skillet pot the crane on the fireplace, and I just took it all in, and I loved it. To the extent that the term ended, and I didn't want to go home. So the people I was staying in was um, Patrick Mockenry, Patrick King, who had a shop in Inverin. Myself and Nora were working in the shop for the summer, and I ate an awful lot of sweets, and I remember coming home as fat as a fool. Uh, my father looking at me and saying, oh my God. Parents didn't visit, you know. I was gone, and then I'd come back. And the night before I was due to come home at the end of the summer, bawled my eyes out, didn't want to go home, and got back to Dublin, got a lift back to Dublin. The bin men had been on strike all summer, and Dublin was stinking. And then the next year I went down again. I'm pretty certain that has to be where it all started. I I know I became a reluctant Dubliner. I know my heart was out of Dublin.
0: How did your academic career develop then? Because you originally thought of studying and did study geography, but took a route then into folklore and I suppose developed then your own particular way of examining things, of scrutinizing things in, in relation to landscape and people.
1: I had a teacher at school, and I should say we, because Jean Meldon, my great friend of all those years, and I would have shared the same connection with this uh, teacher, St. Patrick, Paddy, as we called her, and she was our geography teacher. The nuns would always say, it's Muckras Park, girls. (laughs) So Muckras Park in Donnybrook in Dublin. When it came then to the time to go to UCD, we both studied geography, but I did Irish as a third subject and then picked archaeology. The first year, of fantastic. Rory Dev, Rory De Valera. What an amazing man. And then Tom Jones Hughes in Geography. So I was really lucky. I hadn't been in the museum since I was a child. And there was some Saturday, a group of us were brought in by the late Barry Raftery. And Joe Raftery, Dr. Raftery, was the keeper of antiquities. And we met him. And I remember this group of really enthusiastic archaeology students looking at horse pits. I couldn't believe how... They were fascinated to the degree that they were fascinated with horse bits. And I made my mind up there and then, this isn't for me. So I wandered off and I discovered the ethnographical room, which was still open to the public at that stage. And it was just case after case, like the case they were looking at here cabinets of curiosities lined up one after the other and about three hours later I emerged and I knew it had to have the connection with the people who who made them if that was possible and certainly had to have the connection with the people who used them. Now, I had got the information that the folklore course was starting the following year. 1974 was the first year.
0: Were you one of the first students of folklore in UCD? There
1: was myself, um, Pat Leiser, who became professor. And then there was Hilary Nolan and Onya Vranach. So there were only four of us, four women. Boo there was the professor, the late Boo brilliant man, a huge influence on all his students. And then Kevin Danagher, Cuevie Naidanagher, no who was with Sister Patrick, one of the best teachers I ever had.
0: You were then, I suppose, fortunate to go into the museum very young. I mean, in a sense, you got uh, your dream job.
1: Um, yeah, my mother uh, saw the ad in the paper. <laughs> and said, well, of course you wanted us all to get jobs. The job was an assistant keeper in the Irish Folklife Division of the National Museum of Ireland. And that was 1976, and the Irish Folklife Division had only been set up as a separate division in 1974. That was what the former director really left to this collection. He established it as a separate museum. The director's name was um, A.T. Lucas. Up to that, it was part of the Antiquities Collection this museum wouldn't have been here today without Lucas, there's no doubt about that and this museum wouldn't be here today without Lucas establishing the separateness of this collection Um, and he gave it that
0: uh, what was the condition of the folk life material? How much material was there? When had it been collected? And and I presume that Lucas was the spur in in really minding it.
1: Mm-hmm. Lucas came in nineteen forty eight, adding to the collection, and then through the fifties, and then he became director in nineteen fifty four, up to. Um, the very early 1960s the collection all the life objects were were in what's still there and still known as the antiquities crypt in kildare street um and it was about 1963 he was asked if he would like some money to establish a folk museum and he was given the royal hospital in kilnana his so what happened when the collection moved from the crypt in kildare street it was wrapped up literally in brown paper and twine The OPW, the Office of Public Works, made these great big wooden cases with padlocks on them. Now, because there was so much space in the Royal Hospital, pretty old building, couldn't use it all. It's now
2: Emma, of course. It's
1: now Emma. So we were in there, and the Great Chapel was where most of the uh, collection was stored on shelves. But it did provide extra space to start collecting what was becoming available at that time, which was the bigger pieces of furniture, the dressers, the settled beds, tables, chairs, all of that, and of course the agricultural machinery. The Royal Hospital, was it going to be developed? Was it ever going to be a proper budget? We didn't know, but but the curators at the time were working toward the day when there would be an open-air museum along the lines of what had been established in, in Sweden and Norway and Finland and Denmark. The open-air museum movement would have started in Scandinavian countries in the 1890s. The collection stayed in the Royal Hospital until 1978-79, and then the government wanted it. Where were we given the former reformatory in Dangan and County Offaly? The conditions, they were laughable, really. I mean, we weren't just in the damp; We were sitting in puddles of damp down there. It was extraordinary. Rodents and spiders and spirits and ghosts... And we had our office in the front, and you might have to go all the way back up to the dormitories to get something. Not surprising that there
0: might be ghosts in an old reformatory.
1: Every now and again, the bell would ring at the big gates, and there would be a former inmate who would want to come back and look around. Ah, horrific stories, absolutely horrific. But our job was to um, get a social employment scheme, as it was. So we had local men working with us. So it was opening all these big wooden crates and getting shelves made, getting the materials that you need to look after the collection. So acid-free tissue paper, acid-free boxes, hoovers to sweep the place, um, proper uh, humidifiers and dehumidifiers in the areas where the collection was stored. So we did a huge job, really satisfying.
0: And the material survived.
1: Yeah, very much so. Now, sometimes um, you'd open a, a box, especially if there were clothing items, and especially wool, and the moths would fly out. But it's extraordinary how much of the straw survived, you know, even in those damp conditions. Same with all the wicker, there's a vast wicker collection, and same with that. <laughs>
0: Chris McCarthy is the archivist in the National Folklore Collection in University College Dublin. Here he shows cleanly on loan some of the material Anne O'Dowd used as a source for her book Straw Hay and Rushes in Irish Folk Tradition.
3: Chris we're looking at a lined hardback notebook opened here and this has direct relevance to Anne O'Dowd's book. Could you tell us what contribution would the work of that book add to our knowledge on Straw Hay and Rushes?
4: Uh, we're looking at uh, a notebook a manuscript by Michal McAinry from Bangor Eris, County Mayo. Michal McAinry was one of those collectors working for the Folklore Commission who worked very closely with A.T. Lucas, the director of the National Museum. Lucas would have visited this area of Mayo frequently uh, throughout the 50s, uh, knew McAinry personally, and McAinry would have understood very well the detailed information that Lucas was looking for. Anne uh, has been in here very often, reading all of McAinry's work and other collectors, but I think McAinry above anyone else, symbolises the area of research in material culture. And here on the opening page, he he lists about 20-odd people that he interviewed in detail about the, the whole tradition.
3: I, I'm looking and admiring the handwriting, the codish colouring, the clarity of what's on the page. Did he work in a notebook first and then transferred all this detail into this for people who would look at it in the future? He hardly worked first hand mm. with such clarity and detail.
4: Yes, we're looking at a clean copy here. He was a very careful researcher and he would have returned to these people again and again, Limo, Hefrin, Mora, Ban, Iyentig, age 84, all of these people taking down notes in a notebook. He had shorthand, uh, so he was very able to note down, literally word for word, what they were saying. And then he would have done a draft copy, summarising all of the techniques and the methods uh, used to make these objects, and he would have returned again to the uh, source and asked him, is this exactly what was meant when you said this, that or the other? And then finally he would have produced this clean copy, which is, uh, is beautifully and carefully and neatly uh, handwritten. It's full of drawings explaining the precise process of making these objects from the very start to the final uh, completion. Two pages here, he has written through the text Skrista mark which is to say that he has revised his ideas because he has come across some other piece of information that has enlightened him in some way. Here we see on one page the methodology used by collectors at the commencement of a new section and where they were interviewing uh, an informant, uh, as we call them, a storyteller. They put down basic contextual information, when the recording was made, by whom, the district to which it refers, the name of the speaker, In this case here, we have uh, two brothers, Seamus and Padraig Caffer and their respective ages, 76 and 74, small farmers from a place called Gisalia near Tullahan. Furthermore, it says that they learnt this tradition 60 years before from their grandmother indeed. So that contextual information is very, very important in, in establishing the authenticity of the tradition, that it comes from this particular area and that it was... Learned locally.
3: His beautiful pen and ink drawings, illustrations and of course we also have to say today that it's all written in Irish as Gaelge uh, in the old script which in itself now carries its own history um, and it's lovely to see the two mm. alongside each other there.
4: Macainry's parents were Irish speakers and he grew up speaking some Irish. The area around him in Eris was a great that the area still is today. Anne would have looked through all of this material. She would have looked at the work of other collectors like um, Jim Delaney, who worked largely in the Midland uh, areas, and various other collectors, Michael J Murphy in the north, and various other collectors. MacAvery is exceptional for the fact that he used a lot of diagrams to help explain uh, the, the individual processes at work. You know, the careful handwriting, the diagrams that they drew, and so on. In themselves. They're of very great value and have artistic merit, not just for specialist researchers like Anne, but for people interested in a more general sense in the whole idea of folklore. These represent a valuable uh, window on, on on a past, a pre-industrial Ireland, I suppose.
2: The waggish سیدی نه وارد Ar
0: While in the Museum of Country Life in Mayo, I met with curator Clodagh Doyle. She showed me an object there which also features in Anne O'Dowd's Straw Book, which has also captured the imagination of others more recently.
5: Well, we've a rush raft on display here and it's called the Clea We've called it that and it would have been a traditional watercraft and it's a kind of a one-man craft. But really, it's, it was designed for the River Sook um, in County Roscommon. It was made in 1960s, 1962. Patrick Gately organised for it to be made for the National Museum and it's an acquisition that you know it's almost a curiosity but it it really did suit the type of water that was in the river there we had an artist who, um, Tommy Casby and a couple of years ago, Culture Night 2012, he looked at that raft and he found it very interesting so we went, with all the objects we have such a wonderful archive of material that goes behind that so the, we were able to look at all the photographs the measurements, the materials that were used and he was able to see the photographic evidence of how it was made and he created his own one. He called it Prayer Boat, was really nice and he he then said. It on culture night, he got into wet gear and sailed it on the lake outside, as you saw here. Thankfully, there was no health and safety nightmares at all, it worked out perfectly well.
0: The raft made by Patrick Gately, very interesting Irish term, Gaelic term for, yeah, for I've that.
5: I've always known it as the Clea Hulka, and this is Clea, would be an ancient kind of Irish word for wattle or latticed wattle, and that's kind of based on the makings of it and then. Tolka comes from floods, you know, and it kind of aversions of waves, floods. So again, it's it's just it's a craft that's designed to to take on the flooding or or to just get past, and very useful, I'd say, at this time of year.
0: Beautiful thing too to look at. I know at.
5: it's a lovely thing to look at, and I suppose until I saw Tommy Casby actually get into one like I'd seen the photograph as as in Anne's book in 1962 of Patrick Gately but really to see someone else get into it and feel this is a safe craft and it, it was wonderful to see that these things can be made and it works exactly the way it was meant to you know.
0: was Clodagh Doyle, Curator of the Museum of Country Life in County Mayo. Barbara Lee Lynn, Lectures in Folklore in University College Dublin, and Leondon spoke with her about a method of information gathering that the National Folklore Commission has used continuously since the 1930s and which Anne Dowd used as a central source of knowledge for her book.
6: The questionnaire was used by the Irish Folklore Commission as a means of acquiring material. It was used from the very earliest days of the 1930s and indeed we still use it right up to the present day. The, the idea behind the questionnaires was simply to try to draw material together on a particular subject in a, in a way that would be effective and that would cover the entire island within a relatively short space of time. And that the whole object of this uh, was in order to uh, obviously document aspects of life, aspects of tradition, aspects of folklore. Some which were probably disappearing as the 20th century progressed. But really what Anne O'Dowd has done in her book on straw, hay and rushes and the extraordinary number of uses to which these uh, substances were put, what she has done is to make very great use of the questionnaire on this subject that was sent out by the Irish Folklore Commission and in effect to to draw this material together, to kind of synthesise it in many ways and in her book to make all of that information available to the wider public again. Anne, uh, as she would be the first to say herself, is not the only person to have done this. Uh, very many other authors and academics and other people over the years have also drawn on material that was acquired as a result of the questionnaire system it was a very ingenious kind of an idea, it was a very simple kind of an idea which originated in the late 19th century in continental Europe really especially in northern Europe when people were starting to take an interest in folklore and when various bodies and institutions and individuals were starting to try to collect folklore, somebody got the bright idea that an obvious way to Collect information would be to send out a list of questions to volunteers people who would be willing to answer those questions uh, in uh, various countries in Scandinavia and in Northern Europe particularly to use the material uh, as a kind of a one of the um, important sources of information I suppose for the various folklore archives that were being established at the time and what happened in the 1930s was that Seamus O'Delliarga James Hamilton Delarge, who is who was the man who was really behind the establishment of the Irish Folklore Commission he had a uh, detailed and intimate experience and personal knowledge of the way that archives worked in other parts of Northern Europe. So what he did was to simply borrow this idea to very great effect and uh, in a very profitable and a very productive kind of a way for the Irish Folklore Commission. And from the 1930s on, the Irish Folklore Commission started sending out questionnaires on specific aspects of popular culture, popular tradition and folklore.
3: And Barbara, how was it decided who would received these
6: questionnaires. Who who were the people they were being sent to? That is very closely linked to another of the major collecting schemes which the Irish Folklore Commission organised, and that was the Schools Collecting Scheme, which was organised in the late 1930s. Uh, The Schools Collecting Scheme ran throughout the school year, 1937 to 1938, and that equally well was extremely successful and ended up bringing in a huge volume of material to the archives of the Folklore Commission. What happened then was that somebody got the very bright idea of marrying the notion of the questionnaire system with the the schools collection so the vast majority of the teachers in the, the 26 counties, they were asked if they would be interested in continuing to work with the Irish Folklore Commission as voluntary questionnaire correspondents. So as Seamus O'Cohan, who was formerly the, the archivist here in the, the National Folklore Collection, uh, as he has written that the school teachers really formed the backbone of the questionnaire system in, in the decades that followed. Having said that, not all of the questionnaire correspondents were school teachers. Um, Seamus O'Dalyarga was a very good man at, at networking. He had an enormous number of contacts in other parts of the country all over the, the island of Ireland as did his colleagues in the Folklore Commission Kevin Danner and Shauna Sulawan In terms of subjects covered really all human life is there medicine is in there, children's games are in there, uh, storytelling music, song and dance are in there as well calendar observance and calendar custom is also a subject that was covered on many occasions by various questionnaires uh, Christmas was one of the topics it was one of the focuses of, uh, in the 1940s in fact in 1944, copy of the questionnaire itself is at the beginning of this bound manuscript volume and as you can see there, there are actually ten blocks of questions which cover different aspects of Christmas and Christmas traditions starting with terminology what people used to call the days around Christmas in both Irish and English Christmas decorations is the next heading there food particular kind of foods that were eaten at Christmas and also the whole tradition of fasting in the period immediately before Christmas the fire at Christmas is the next subject on the list here Christmas candles and the important and the symbolic use of Christmas candles at Christmas time which most of us are still of course familiar with today the idea perhaps of the youngest member of the household or sometimes the oldest member of the household lighting the Christmas candle and Christmas Eve and so on the importance surrounding Christmas Eve itself and Christmas Eve of course represents a kind of an older way of time reckoning whereby the night was reckoned to come before the day so the actual occasion of Christmas Eve like St Bridget's Eve like uh, May Eve like Halloween like New Year's Eve. It, it, it was actually the night before Christmas Day that was really the central point of the occasion and of the, the, the observances and festivities and so on. The livestock at Christmas again how they would be treated at Christmas uh, then Christmas Day is, is number 8 in our list of, of questions here. Prompts as to how people actually celebrated and marked Christmas Day and the last two headings here are Christmas weather prophecies, divination practices that are associated with Christmas and then you finally have number 10 here is a question on modern innovations and this includes things like uh, and I'm just reading from the list here Christmas stockings, mistletoe, plum pudding shop bought presents and so on so you can really see if these things were regarded as modern innovations in the 1940s you can really see how times have changed so much and I do remember as well um, in looking through this questionnaire a number of years ago there was a a reference in the 1940s obviously when the questionnaire was sent out to the fact that Christmas trees were starting to appear in the South Dublin suburbs in the 1940s which again is so, it contrasts so sharply with the, the situation we have today Day where you know Christmas trees are obviously completely universal nowadays
0: Barbara Lynn their lecturer in folklore in University College Dublin
7: the <laughs> <laughs> Ek was she And then
0: you then made an exhibition out of some of the material here, in particular in relation to hay, straw and rushes in the Museum of, of Country Life uh, at Tarla in Kaspar, where we are.
1: To me, it's the core of what the whole folk life Collection is about, because it's making things from materials that are freely available to you in the landscape. So... It's the intrinsic part of the collection of folk life objects. It's the core of the whole collection to me. So if we look at some of, um, of the things in particular, some of them might be in in the making, in the tradition, thousands of years old, literally, mm-hmm. and then maybe some traditions that have come in maybe in the last and even up to the 1930s. And I can give instances of that. But I'm looking as as we're talking here at, at the cow spansel. Now a spansel is for the woman because it was usually the woman who milked the cow. And so that she wouldn't get a kick from the, the hind leg of the animal, she'd put a spancel or a rope around the two hind legs. Sometimes the two front legs had the spancel, but usually the two hind legs. So a spancel would be about 18 inches in length. a rope could be of straw, could be of hay, could be of horsehair, could be of the tail hairs of the cow being milked. And so that was a, a very easy material. So all these materials are there. If she needs a spencil, she goes into the area around her and she gets the materials to make the object and she has what she needs. But the horsehair spencil, the cowhair spencil, are probably the oldest objects in this collection. Uh, they're certainly thousands of years old, without any doubt. And there's a lovely, lovely seventh century story um, about a woman who uh, is coming out of the field with her. Spancel in her hand, and she's just milked her cow, so she has her pail of milk, and uh, a, a guy who isn't up to any good comes up to her and attempts to assault her what does she do with her spansel? She manages to protect herself, and she strangles him with it. They're the stories that can be told about the collection. And it's the functional aspect of it, because some people now say, well, they don't have a function anymore, they're in a museum, and that's quite true. They're objects that were used, they're not used anymore. They're objects that um, are there for inspiration, for artists and for craftspeople. I think the basic thing in the human psyche is curiosity. And I think that's, to me, what a museum is about, satisfying some element of that curiosity.
0: Looking at this, when you mentioned the the art, uh, how some of the objects would be an inspiration for artists, for instance, looking at this extraordinary horse... Harness, but it's almost like an entire body piece for a horse, displayed beautifully on a, on a kind of perspex horse that reminds me of Warhorse, you yeah. know, they're, they're the wonderful horse at Warhorse. Beautifully made mm. thing. Tell us a little more about it.
1: Yeah, this was made by a man called Patrick McCullough from Carrauntois in County Tyrone. He would have been fairly well known, and he would have been an Irish speaker. He would have had notoriety because of that, and he wrote stories. But he was the supreme craftsman in Russia's and what rushes are there? These—they're they're, these, they're the field rushes. They're the rushes that grow in the fields. Um, it would be the juncus species for people who are wondering what it is. Or the rushes that grow. You see them when you're traveling throughout the country by lakes and rivers. It's um, the long rush. It could be up to six, ten feet high. And that's the scarpus lacustris. So the rushes are pulled always. And they're pulled during the summertime when they're the freshest. The material right down to the roots can be used. So even this free material, they're using every bit of it. And then they're left out in the sun to dry. So if they're green when they're pulled... The sun whitens them a bit and then they get a, a mallet or a beetle or a tournine, um and they start beating the pith out of the rush so that it lies flat to prepare it for plaiting. And the, pla- the kind of plaiting that's done is the plaiting that a woman would do with, with her hair. So it's a three-ply plait. And what we're looking at is the riding harness the Patrick McCullough made so somebody could actually ride on that and with it has the stirrups and has the reins just a beautiful piece absolutely beautiful piece leather 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 collars leather harness had been around for centuries at this stage it was being made in the in selbridge and kildare in the 1770s um, and yet because it worked because of the strength of this tradition was there it worked why change it this free material was there the collar was there it worked
0: in the book, you talk about uh, social attitudes, and I suppose so much emerges from from this material. It's not just the art, the objects themselves, but it's a whole social history. And about some people, some visitors to Ireland, writing about the beauty of the objects and the practical use, and almost in praise of them, and others then being slightly derogatory, you know, of, uh, almost regarding this as an indication of poverty and backwardness. Oh, it's very it's interesting that contrasting those contrasting views.
1: A lot of the 18th and 19th century travellers, and there are a lot of um, travel books, they, they tended to plagiarise, might be too strong a word. Some of them certainly did from one another. The most famous travel writers would be Mr. and Mrs. Hall, publishing in the 1840s. And they had fantastic illustrations, but fairly well known artists. And when you look at some th- um, 19th and maybe even earlier 18th century things, you wonder has the artist drawn it? the way they actually saw it have they put artistic license into it but certainly the um the information that the halls with their own rough sketches gave to the artists are true because we have the objects and we can say yes that object is here it's in this drawing
0: um, and what, the objects here and where did they in general where did they come from
1: now, um, A.T. Lucas, the director of the museum, um, when I started, he would have started collecting in earnest in the in the 1960s, um, helped by this whole wonderful network of people through the Folklore Commission and Folklore Collectors, and then the people he would have met himself as he went around the country. So he, he identified through all of those contacts people who are still making these. And, and to me, it's the importance of the difference between people who can make them now, and there are people who can still make them now, and people who are making them at that time in the 1960s and 1970s, and they were making them because they were making a functional object. They weren't making them to sell them on. They were making them to use for themselves or because a neighbour had asked them, could you make something for me? I can't do it. And that's the difference. And that's what Lucas caught... I I was really lucky and I got kind of the tail end of that into the 70s and that's Ted Kelly's um, hen's nest that we're looking at there Um, yeah that was Ted Kelly I was with my great friend John Kelly in Riverstown and I saw a man coming toward me carrying a hen's nest and I couldn't believe it because I'd been looking at these in the museum for the previous few years because I was writing an article about them. And I thought, oh my God, they're not still being used. And I stopped him and I said, can I ask you where you got that? And he said, oh, it's a hen's nest, a hen's nest for the hens. And I said, oh, wow. And I didn't want to say I know all about them because then the conversation would have stopped. So I said, oh, I'd love to get one of them. So he pointed me in the direction of Ted Kelly. Ted was from Ballantohar in Sligo. Um, and he taught people. So the great thing about Ted's skill um, and craft is that he has passed on the gift to several other people, and there are some really good straw workers now.
0: Could you describe this straw hen's nest for us? And it's a beautiful
1: object. Mm. Um, it's, it's a hen's nest. Now, if you think of the material, it's made from a straw, and it's oaten straw. And the only way you can really work oaten straw is by plaiting it. This one is plaited in what's known, well, what I've called the built-up plaiting technique. It's about two feet high. It's about 12 inches in diameter at the base. And it has this lovely square opening, which is about eight inches square. And the hens would hop in there when they were either laying their eggs or hatching their eggs and they were, they, the hen's nests were hung up in the, the rafters of the house so you know the, the old thatched houses had all the wooden beams and all the, the, the roof timbers they'd hang the hen's nest from the roof timbers and the hen would be quite happy up there and it saved the woman of the house the trouble of having to go out because hens will lay out as they say um, and she'd have to go out and look in all the ditches to see where the hens had laid her eggs whereas if she had her hens laying in a hen's nest then, then the eggs were all together there's lovely folklore about hens. <laughs> um, hens tend to roost. If you look very closely, you see these things in, in drawings. If you look just at the picture, which is kind of the letter reading or something, you just see a woman maybe reading a letter by a window. Um, but look into the rafters and there, there might be hens roosting. And what that means is they have their, their claws around uh, a pole coming out of one of the, the timbers. They like to stay together. They like at night time to go to their roost and sleep. So hens like coziness. The hens will start an an awful kind of cackle and make a noise at night time because they're talking to each other, is the folklore, because hens in folklore came from Denmark. They were there before the Vikings, but they probably came in 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 more numbers during the Viking times. In tradition, the hens are associated with the Danes, the Luchlany, or the northern people. And they're always saying, oh, we're going to go back to Denmark, we're not staying here anymore. And it was very unlucky to leave your house with the hens in the house. You had to be sure to shift your hens out of the house and shoot them out while you were going away. Because if you didn't, they'd rake up all the dirt and dust up to the fire and cause the house to go on fire. They said then, once they got up onto the roofs they were comfortable, and they forgot all about going to back to Denmark.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh- if we look at uh, uh, this in, again in your book and here in the exhibition. Beautiful detail on, on children's objects, toys, uh, things associated with children's games and sport. And a, a child's rattle here, a very yeah, beautiful right. object Isn't again.
1: It? The rattles were made out of rushes, they were made out of rods. So this one is made from rushes. Um, with a handle at one end and a container, a long elongated container at the other end. And to give the rattling sound, they just put in a few pebbles, a few stones. So the child would pick it up and just shake it and they got the, 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 the noise of the stones banging together and banging against the sides of the rush container. And then the Lee Bean box beside it we didn't have bean boxes when I was a child, but I remember going down to the the River Dodder in, Dub- in Milltown in Dublin um, with our jam jars and we'd um, uh, catch the lee beans, as we called them, and bring them home. Should what are lee beans? Tiny little fish. They wouldn't be more than an inch or two in length. And I remember my sister, my older sister Mary, putting down her jam jar one day in, in the Dodder and a, a trout went into it, so it was a <laughs> bit bigger than a <laughs> lee bean. But they were butterfly cages as well, so what they are... Uh, always made of rushes I've never seen them not made of rushes and Eston Evans who's kind of you know the very well known Irish folk life writer and ethnologist he would say that these are found in African countries and Asian countries he probably saw it, but just didn't make a note of it. I haven't. I haven't come but across. it. is a wonderful
0: idea that what children would have had these I think the ma- little there. objects mm. made from from rushes mm-hmm. in which to
1: hold butterflies. Absolutely, and to catch butterflies. So it's got a container at one end, and it's an open uh, container. So a, and again, a long handle. So if you saw a butterfly, you just put your nice light rush rush container up in the air, and you'd catch your container in the shovel-like end to it so a form
0: of a butterfly net but made mm, from yeah, the materials that yeah, people had to hand
1: absolutely and they, they see the kids could make these things themselves and the adults certainly made the, the rush rattle is a little bit more intricate and it was probably for a younger child but the children could make the toys themselves
0: and this this extraordinary object again uh, it looks vaguely like a, a satchel or bag it's a wonderful object. Where did that where did this come from?
1: It's a rush bag and it's from North Mayo. This is just one of these stories that I loved figuring out all the pieces and putting it together like a jigsaw. Michal McEnry was the main folklore collector in North Mayo. These two words, Theokog and Pellick, uh, were found in Mayo for containers. Containers that would have held up to two or three hundred weight of corn that you put beside the fire to dry, or containers that would have stored the turf, or containers for, for the, the corn to bring to where you had your puchin still out in the hills hillside somewhere. So there, there were different sized containers. And then some of the containers, the Theokok and Pellek, might have just um, held the knitting that the woman was doing or the man's razor and things like this. So they were in the house. This one is made from rushes. And again, it's a plait. But in this one, it's a multi plat. And there always had to be an uneven number of rushes in the plait. So you might have had 11. You might have had 15. You could have had up to 33. Depending on how wide you wanted your strip, I had discovered this um platting for the making of very fashionable women's bonnets. Now, it's kind of all started in Livorno, maybe in the 1600s in Italy. So we come from Italy to England, probably in the 1700s. By the end of the 1700s, the fashion for beautiful bonnets made out of wheat and straw had hit Dublin. And in order to get the plait, because these these bonnets, the the plait that went into the construction of these gorgeous bonnets with ribbons and bows all over them, might have just been Half a centimeter So you can imagine the tiny little fingers that were used to plait the individual wheaten straws. So to get a supply of this material for all of the hat and bonnet making industries that were springing up in the cities like Belfast and Dublin, Cork, they started platting schools around the country. And there was one in Newport, not far from where I live, Newport and May. And there were 200 children brought into a platting school to plait very narrow little plats all day um, and then that was that was all rolled up into a big ball and all those big balls at the end of the week then went off to Dublin to the factories. That platting that those small little children were doing in the platting schools and the other platting schools around the country in the beginning of the 1800s is exactly the same method and it's not an easy method you can do three plats no problem but if you have to plait 33 individual strands. You have to learn how to do that. And I think the learning was through the plaiting schools earlier in the 19th century. The bag, the theocoke, then we're looking at, is a, a rush platted bag. So the individual plaits stripped together and make a bag. And it was Mihal McHenry and Lucas who decided, right, we have to get these. And he went off to his 90-year-olds and his 101-year-old informants, as they're called, and he came back with this object to the museum. To me, it's it's the prize of this exhibition. It has to be the story of it, its connection with plating schools, small little children having um, a few pence at the end of a week for the work that they were doing. It's just, I think, it's a beautiful story. <laughs>
0: Your book Straw Hay and Rushes in Irish Folk Tradition. Tell me then how that emerged. Is it almost in a way a natural extension of your work over the years, and in particular your your work in association with the exhibition? which became a permanent exhibition here in the museum.
1: Yeah, pretty much. I was only a few years in the museum when I saw the importance of this collection. I wanted it to be richly illustrated. I want the colour in the black and white. I wanted the pictures of the people doing things. I wanted the the older images, the artists' images. I wanted contemporary artists' images. I wanted as much variety in the images as possible, and I got 360 of them into it, so... Um so it was in the the 80s when um, Dr Lucas who had been the director had retired I used to go and visit him in Atheria at the time and he just said what would, would you think about it and then after he died, Etienne Ryn, previous professor of archaeology in UCG, he asked me if I'd take it on. So I did, yeah, of course. Lucas had sent out this extremely detailed questionnaire in 1962. He had devised it with Seamus O'Dellarga from the Folklore Commission, as it was known as at the time. And it was a really good way of getting the information in fairly quickly, so you either got very long responses from people who felt like writing a lot, or you got the pertinent information from other areas in a short form. Format. Each one of them remembered the things still being made and used, or had older memories of people telling them that they remembered it. So it was all sorts of levels of time period that were covered by the replies.
0: In a sense, I suppose this book is the third in what you might term a trilogy of books that you've you've made now, uh, drawing on. Folk tradition uh, and a great deal more: history, geography, social geography. Uh, one on cooperative labour, one on uh, spalt beans and tatty hookers, uh, migratory workers from Ireland working in Scotland, in particular. And now this on on straw, hay, and rushes. How do you see those works fitting together in terms of making a bigger picture of of Irish life and history?
1: I. I think the way I approach what I see as not just it's not just the objects but it's getting the stories and the lives and putting the context of the memories, the more recent memories, into an historical context and you always have to kind of keep an eye on what's happening now but some people bring it into a, oh you have to look at the migration of workers coming into europe at the moment yeah it's all relevant i'm kind of more an historical folklorist or a, an historical ethnologist i can i can i'm happy with saying this I can stop in the 60s, 70s at a stretch, but I don't go into any further than that. The work on the straw really came about because it is the core of the collection. Lucas had collected this vast amount of information that we wouldn't have, both in terms of the questionnaire replies. That information wouldn't be there if he hadn't sent out the questionnaire, and the objects wouldn't be here if he hadn't made a strenuous effort to get every contact he knew around the country to find people who could still make the objects. Oh, that's absolutely invaluable because it's not documented anywhere else and despite this plethora of mainly English travellers and writers going around the country for decades and writing um, travel books they don't mention these things because they didn't see them. And I often think, but you must have seen a straw chair or a hen's nest. And then you remember the houses were small and they were dark and the windows were small. And there wasn't much light getting in. And maybe they didn't really want to go into a house that looked a bit maybe unkempt or, you know, or maybe they were being polite and saying we're, we're not invited in so we won't go in. You're really searching for the little scraps of information in, in any other source than.
0: Many, many wonderful illustrations, black and white, colour of photographs of some of the people who made these objects. Again, several took my eye. This one a painting from Loch Corbe, uh, The Rush Gatherers. When is it? 1860.
1: I knew in the mid-80s I wanted to do this, and then I started gathering things, and even going on holidays. I remember finding a bracelet of straw in Lanzarote, and I had to buy it, or being given presents of straw baskets by people. And I had to say, stop bringing me back straw baskets, please, have enough. I remember being with my sister and her husband, who had been living in the Philippines for the last 10 or 12 years, and I remember seeing uh, material, actual fabric, made from pineapple, fibre or um, banana fibre. and This all intrigued me. I was looking for images all the time. I knew I didn't have any problem. I knew I was going to have a huge range, black and white drawings, black and white photographs, people doing things, colour images. The photographer in the museum, Valerie Dowling, superb quality work of the, the studio images of the objects in the collection. And then very shortly before I'd said I have enough images now, picked up the Irish Times on a Saturday. It was the back pages there with uh, auctioned uh, antiques in and, and this image was there and I said oh my god I hadn't seen that before so it's J.J. Hill he drew this probably the 1850s he produced it as a print that was circulated as a, a poster if you like in the Illustrated London news. And so there would have been many copies of the poster or the, the print distributed the auction house had said that they had the original I went into my car and I went down to the auction room and I was looking at it, and I actually put in a bid for it. But it went for, I think it went for a bit, bit, bit off money, certainly more than I wanted to give. And then I went online, simply at home, and I found this version of the poster. So this is the original poster that went with the Illustrated London News in 1860. And what it shows is these three people on the boat... Beautiful painting, beautiful colourful painting. The man with his red hat and rowing the boat and maybe his two sisters in in one end of the boat and the, the one dog swimming in the lake and the other dog still on the little island. But what they are are gathering the rushes. These are the rushes that they need for maybe covering the potato pits so that the potatoes are protected during the winter or maybe um, patching up the roof of a house, thatching it or completely thatching an outhouse or using it as bedding for animals, whatever they wanted to. And they'd cut this with their, their scythe or their, their reaping hook and they'd pile it up onto the boat and then row, row home again. A magnificent image.
0: The cover of the book, a um, photograph of a man called Bernie Winters from Clare Island, by Michael McLaughlin. Tell me about him and, yeah. and this
1: particular mm-hmm. photo. Bernie Winters um, passed away in April, and Michael McLaughlin had taken this photograph, so he, he thinks probably certainly in 2013. He was out on Clare Island and he went into Bernie's house, and he was a bachelor. He didn't need anything other than what he had in his house. He didn't need the three-piece suite. <laughs> he didn't need the carpet on the ground. He had all the comforts of the world. Very, very popular. Michael McLaughlin went into his his house. He knew he had made straw things. Now, Michael wouldn't have had, wouldn't have had any kind of clear detail of what they were. Bernie said to him, wait till I go in and get some of the objects. He went up to the room and brought down these So Michael put them in the image without really knowing what he was doing because a few months later then, after Bernie passed away and I opened the Mayo News and I couldn't believe it and we'd been looking for images. And the, the designer in Irish academic press had said, what about using a, a St. British cross? And I sent him this image. And I think everyone in Irish academic press loved it. It was just suddenly it was the image for the book.
0: It's the maker and made things and there's a whole context within what we see of his of his house of his kitchen that sets the scene for so much in the book.
1: It looks like from a real maybe 60s 70s time but this was only two years ago and I think that's the the brilliance of it.
0: What does it mean to you to see this material gathered together now in what you have called your straw book
1: it means that I gathered the information that Lucas had initially brought together and added to it, it and did all the work of cataloguing the collection and getting all the historical references, because it's, it's, this isn't just about the people who were alive in the 20th century. I, I think the publishing world, and, and all credit to, to Conor Graham and Irish Academic Press, They've made a superb publication. Um, Stuart Coughlin is the designer and it was very obvious when all the material went to Stuart down in, down in Cork that he loved working with us. It. It's, it's a handsome publication.
0: There's a beautiful phrase uh, which goes back to maybe it about the 8th century which links rushes to welcoming to a timelessness. I suppose that again we see in that image of, of Bernie Winters. Mm. Would you remind us of that? Mm.
1: If I knew you were coming, I'd spread green rushes for you, and it's—I think it's wonderful. Um, and uh, the idea was that you had an earthen floor. If you spread the rushes, then you had some dry place to put your sleeping area or to put your sitting area. So spreading rushes is ancient, early historic, at least, if not or if not or earlier than that again. If I knew you were coming, I, I'd spread green rushes for you. Means, if I knew you were coming, you're such a special guest and we haven't seen you for a while I'd put a welcome of green rushes under your feet and I'd say to you you're very welcome to my home
0: Anna Dowd, thanks so much Straw, Hay and Rushes in Irish Folk Tradition by Anna Dowd is published by the Irish Academic Press for further information on the exhibition Hay, Straw and Rushes and other exhibitions running at the Museum of Country Life, go to the National Museum of Ireland website museum.ie forward life. From me, Vincent Woods, goodbye and a very happy Christmas. Arts tonight presented by Vincent Woods is produced by Clean and the Onloon.